0: feet a bolt of fear went through him as they thundered through the sky for he saw the riders coming high and he heard them one full cry
1: Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T Hetzel, and today in the studio, I'm pleased as punch to have Eileen Pollock um, in the writer's chair with me. And not <laughs> Welcome pleased to be here.
2: <laughs> Please, as punch.
1: <laughs> Yippee! <laughs> um, Eileen is reading tonight um, at the Michigan League. Uh, at 7 p.m., uh, sponsored by Shaman Drum Bookshop, um, from her latest her latest collection, uh, stories and novellas in the mouth. Um, and so Eileen is here, and we're going to hear a little bit um, from in the mouth uh, in 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 about 15 minutes. Uh, but in the meantime, let me, as way of introduction, I'll read from the back of Eileen's Eileen's book. Eileen pollock is the author of the Rabbi in the Attic and other stories. Paradise, New York, and Woman Walking Ahead in Search of Catherine Weldon and Sitting Bull, which won a Willa finalist award in nonfiction. She has received fellowships from the Missioner Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Rona Jaffe Foundation, and the Massachusetts Arts Council. Stories from In the Mouth have been awarded a Pushcart Prize, the Cohen Award from Plowshares, and the Lawrence Foundation Prize from Michigan Quarterly Review. The BRIS was selected by Stephen King for inclusion in the Best American Short Stories 2007. Eileen lives in Ann Arbor, um, which we're all thankful for, Mm -hmm. and teaches at the University of Michigan, where she is Zell Director of the MFA Program in Creative Writing. So once again, welcome, Eileen (laughs) (laughs) Pollock. And so Eileen, is this this the first, um, because the book just came out recently, right, from Four Ways? Four-Way Books. Yes. Um, Four-Way Books. In
2: fact, its um, official publication date is April 1st, but the hometown folks get to see the first copies, so oh this is why i'm reading tonight so this
1: is great so first living writers and then well um then you'll be right the and folks then the
0: world, and, yeah. yeah and then the world
1: right oh eileen if only it were always that way but i'm <laughs> i shouldn't be greedy so so again today at the michigan league um in the Hussy room 7 p.m so if people are kind of listening right now you can uh make sure you head on over to michigan league this evening um and your website i noticed that i was um, looking at your website uh, recently, and I love the part, as soon as you go to it, we've got Pollock's Hotel <laughs> as the first thing that pops up. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. Um, actually, it's funny. We just put that up on the site. Um, I So my family owned this hotel in the Catskills, and every hotel had um, a postcard picture of it done by this immigrant named um, Jay Landis. He went around from hotel to hotel, and he sold people what he called aerial views of their hotels. These are big hotels. Even the small ones really were quite a few acres. But he didn't have an airplane, so to create this aerial (laughs) view, he would either climb a hill, you know, sort of overlooking the hotel, or if there were no hill, he just brought a ladder, and he would stand on the top of the ladder, and that's how he got his aerial view, and the hotel owners wanted to show off all their facilities, so he... Um, had to get in everything into this one sort of postcard size view so things are wildly out of scale you know the you know pool might be crammed in in a tiny little space and somehow he had to get everything in um, so these are just artistically wonderful cards and there's one for every hotel or bungalow colony that ever existed in the Catskills there were hundreds of them And apparently they're collector's items now. We have hundreds of them in my aunt's attic from, you know, when our hotel closed. And what was really wonderful is recently, um, there's an institute now. There's an institute for everything for (laughs) Catskills Hotels. And um, they found this guy's son. And he, you know, he knew that this had been his father's job, but he had no idea that his father's cards... Had become these collector's I Really? Items, really. So th- when I found that out, um, I just thought, well, what a treasure trove. And um, actually, a-, a former student of mine, Fritz Swanson, who runs this website and is uh, just graded he, he said, "That's the splash page. What did I have for the splash page? Right to right. make people feel at home." And I said, "Well, sure. Welcome to Pollock's Hotel." And I <laughs> gave him the card, and he scanned it up there.
1: Oh, yeah, it's a great idea. It, it is. I love that postcard. So, are you? Do you also have some of these, the other um, postcards up at your house? Like, do you have since they? Right. Well, or just, are they all still in the attic?
2: Well, um, I raided my aunt's attic a while back. Um, and so I have all sorts of memorabilia from the hotel. Um, they're just wonderful items. There's also a f- photographic. Um, so the Landis card is sort of a watercolor. And then we have photographic uh, postcards. But they were all done with these um, fisheye lenses because the rooms were tiny. And, and they wanted to. the owners wanted to make them big. So they have whatever those the convex or concave lenses. Right. And they just look. Very unsettling. These 50s, kind of trippy. Right. right very trippy postcards. <laughs> and the little giveaways, there used to be um, sort of uh, guest nights where there were talent shows and dance contests. And if you won, you'd get a little sewing kit or a um, mirror with people's birthstones on the back and everything said Pollock's Hotel on it. So we have all these like little combs and things. And we have this wonderful, uh, there's this wonderful brochure that they'd send out. The hotel was only open in the summer. They didn't want people to forget over the winter or then sign on with a different hotel. So they'd barrage people with these brochures saying, don't forget to make your reservations. And one of them has a little poem that apparently my father (laughs) wrote. um, It says something like, be Republican or Democrat for... Um, Oh, God, I forget who was running against Ike for Eisenhower or Ike, (laughs) Stevenson or Ike. Um, A stay at Pollock's will be a delight. (laughs) You know, a vote for Pollock's will be a delight, (laughs) which we like to kid is clearly where I got my... Writing talent.
1: <laughs> so. Everything has its genesis. Right. <laughs> well, that sounds wonderful. So I I haven't been able to read that collection yet, but, but Paradise, New York, I'm, right. that would be the, the, where you tell these stories. And I did read an interview um, that you gave about that book where you right, said, right. well, it's not like it's, you know, it's na- it's my grandmother is not Nana. You know, nothing's. <laughs> <laughs> right. Except I, I once said that
2: at a reading and my father uh. May he rest in peace. Was was there, and and he stood up from the audience and said, "Nah, she was worse in real life." <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess I guess it's okay to say that, um, you know, it was an exaggeration. But um, basically, that's who she was. But she didn't do some of the things in the
0: book. Right, right. <laughs> yeah,
2: and and in this collection, um, there's still hints of the Catskills. You know, you find out that people worked there in their prime, but this sort of follows a lot of those people to Boca Raton, to which they all retired.
1: <laughs> so really, is that sort of yeah, oh, the whole, that sort uh, of a uh, truism? Yeah,
2: the Catskills just moved en masse down to Boca Raton, Florida, actually. Um, and a good part of Long Island and New Jersey, you know, reached a certain age and just moved to Boca. So, yeah.
1: so now, do you think that, because um, uh, the last, the novella in, 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 in the mouth, um, Beached in Boca, is obviously taking... Place there. Right. Do you think this will be? Um, are, are you Are you writing stories right now that are also? Uh Hinging on Florida as a backdrop to some things, or, well, or these, the communities that you're building. These
2: these were mostly the Boca stories. So there's another one in here, the Brist, that also takes place there. So the two novellas take place in in um, Boca Raton, and it, the title In the Mouth is sort of a play on that because Boca Raton really means mouth of the rat. Yes, and the dentistry. And the dentistry. So there's <laughs> <laughs> I owe oh, a good friend, my friend Marcy Hirschman, said I was trying to think of what to call the book as a whole, and she said, In the Mouth.
1: And where stories come from, <laughs> right? Well, <right? That's> the <laughs> um, there's also,
2: there's one story called Milk about a woman, uh, two women nursing their children or trying to nurse their children. And there's that, you know, the, uh, there are a lot of parents and children in this book. And so yes. it's sort of that imagery too. you know, the child nursing and the mother trying to f- fill the child's milk, uh, mouth with milk. So, Yes. Yeah, it, it's funny because I didn't even recognize, I think, what a gold mine I had in, in Boca Raton <laughs> until um, two other people discovered it first. I know, you know, sometimes when you have to go visit a place in real life, all you're thinking about is, let me please get through these four days without <laughs> losing it. Or you're not thinking about the literary <laughs> possibilities and, and usually the places you visit your family.
1: I could see some of Wendy, the, your character Wendy's frustrations right. that may have had you know, some real-life implications. <laughs> yeah, right, but w- what
2: was funny was um, I the first book I read that was set in the retirement communities of southern Florida was Philip Roth's nonfiction book Patrimony in which he does this very loving uh, portrait of his father in his father's last years as he's sort of taking care of his father through a brain tumor. And it takes place in one of these retirement communities. And he makes, he's so generous. And, um, you know, there there are a lot of easy swipes, you know, and and sarcasm that he could have, you know, especially being Philip Roth, that he could have leveled at this community. And instead, he really tries to figure out who these people are and why they live this way. And I was so touched by that portrait, and I thought, oh, yeah, you just take what you know about the community, but you add your love and compassion, and, and this is what you hope to get. And then the second inspiration was watching Seinfeld, because Jerry Seinfeld's parents in the show live in Boca, and they live in Boca Vista Pod 3, you know, Phase 3. And <laughs> you know, I like to say they live next door, they live next door to my parents. <laughs> but the first episode of Seinfeld that I saw that was set in Boca, it opens with a scene in the kitchen, in the parents' kitchen, and the father is trying to take these cookies out and eat them, and they're Chips Ahoy, chocolate chip cookies. And the mother, Jerry's mother, is yelling at him that he can't eat it; it's got too much fat in it. And <laughs> you really could have—I just—I—I I, I really left myself sick. And you could have really just put a video camera in my. Parents. I mean that in <laughs> that fight over the Chips Ahoy, you know, it was like just let the poor man eat a chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> he doesn't have that much longer on the planet, you know. <laughs> right. was, but you can it has Morty, it has fat in it. And I thought, Well, I'm not letting Cherry Seinfeld take all this material, you know, and and so I did my version of Beached and boat So
1: how and it since and since those stories are there are like the continuing characters too right. that we see with when Milt moves down after Greta dies, um so, how did you decide? Because that's a big part of the the real estate in the book is is taken up with this right. family story um, in some way. And we meet the daughter much more in Beached in Boca, mm-hmm. of course, but she does make a cameo. So we did we get to yeah right. nicely <laughs> done there. So how do you decide that there isn't something that you want to expand in that world, Eileen, rather than than taking it and 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 adding it to a collection of other. Stories? Like, wh- wh- how do you make that decision? Because you've got so many pages of the stories that are sort of, you know, so there would be an option of a linked collection where mm-hmm. every story, right, had, right. had, had similar tra- characters. Well,
2: you know, you write what you move to write at the time, and then if you haven't said at all about a certain place or a certain character or a certain thematic question, you come back to it, and almost naturally, you find that at certain times in your life, you're preoccupied with certain questions, certain people, and uh, certain places, and so a lot of these um, were more or less about my father and my attempt to understand that whole generation of, of men who, um, you know, grew up during the Depression, fought in World War II, bought a house, had a profession, and just spent their whole lives... Working and taking care of their families, and the, and those values seem so different from mine, <laughs> and so that generational dynamic really um, plays how out so, in most of the stories.
1: How so? Um, when you say that those values are so different than yours, like, um, would you say those values are more representative by the represented by the character Wendy, or how would you?
2: Well, you know, the the father who, or that whole group of men who seem to live for other people and take so much pleasure in their families and not you know, run off with other women or, you know, um, say in midlife, well, I don't like this job anymore. Screw it. I'm going to go, you know, live on an island in Tahiti. And as opposed to my generation, which every five minutes says, you know, am I happy? Am I happy enough? Uh, Is there some job I'd be happier at? Or is there some person with whom I'd be happier? And um, that's how I grew up. And so I wanted to, to look at that change. So they
1: gave you that in a way.
2: Yeah, they, you know, in this in the last story Wendy sort of is realizing we were the last the first generation in human history whose parents told us we want you to be happy. Your whole goal in life is to be happy, but it's because they hadn't had that. And then they looked at us and like all you're doing is running around trying to be happy.
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> sort of in shock. How do, how did they that come happen. to be? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, let, um Eileen, let's take a short break and we'll be right back with Eileen Pollack and in her book In the Mouth Stories and Novellas.
3: Is there ever enough space between us to keep us both honest and true? Why is it so hard just to sit in the yard and stare at the sky so blue? I got a new way of walking and a new way of talking, honey, when I'm around you. But it gives me the blues when I got some good news and you're not there to bring it to Life is a blessing, it's a delicatessen Of all the little favors you do All wrapped up together No matter the weather Baby, you always come free It's a measure of treasure That gives me the pleasure Of loving you the way I do And you know I would gladly say I need your love badly And bring these little things to you Cause you got gold inside of you you got gold gold inside of you well i got some gold inside Gotta be going You know I hate to say so long It gives me an ocean Of mixed up emotion I'll have to work it out in a song
1: Good afternoon, if you're just tuning in I'm T. Hetzel And this is Living Writers Today, uh, Eileen Pollack joins us in the studio With her latest, In the Mouth um, well, We were just talking about Eileen's novella That comes uh, at the end uh, of of in the mouth beached in Boca, and Eileen's going to be reading a, a few sections of that this evening right. at her reading. So so we're gonna um gonna keep you guys in suspense about that. <laughs> and so Eileen um, is going to actually read from the beginning of the how the book starts. Also featuring we were laughing featuring a dentist mm-hmm. um, as Eileen's exploring. Uh, Because your father. My father was a dentist. (laughs) I should
2: say that even though um, my grandparents owned this hotel in the Borscht Belt, my father grew up there and he helped them run it, but he hated it. I mean, he had, he's, you know, spent his childhood and young adulthood running around trying to please the guests and seeing what it did to his parents.
1: And And like the head waiter of the children's room or something. Right. (laughs) Right. That comes in there.
2: (laughs) So um, he he probably had every job at the hotel at some point. Um, He scrounged up money from an uncle of his to go to nyu and um get a dental degree um i shouldn't say too much about where that money came from <laughs> <was sort> of <laughs> why not ill-gotten gains that's oh, in come my on. next novel come on. <laughs> oh come on a teaser then <laughs> <Or> a <little laughs> but, <more. laughs> but then um you know the other great break in his life was world war ii which you know for a lot of men and women that was how they got away from home so they sent him to india he was a dentist in India for a number of years, uh, which was the great adventure of his life. He came back and never went anywhere else. Um, until he went to Florida. Yeah, until he went to Florida. <laughs> so he was um, a dentist in our town, and then we had the hotel would be open during the summers, and we'd all spend the summer up there, but he preferred being in people's mouths
1: <laughs> than being in the pool. Uh, <laughs> and how did you how did you feel about going up there those summers? Then oh, that must well, have been. I
2: loved it. I mean, it was, you know, it was only a mile away from our house. And so we'd go up early in the morning and spend the whole day there. And often I'd sleep over. Um, and it was like having your own, you know, queendom, uh, princessdom, where it was your family hotel and there was a pool and a day camp. And you just could run around and be completely free and everybody kind of had to do what you wanted except the older kids who beat you up you know i mean (laughs) it was it was how i spent you know my summers uh it was really wonderful um Anyway, but then th- there's this whole aspect of my life. My father being a dentist, and when I was 13, I'd go in on Saturdays and and be his assistant. <laughs> and nobody thought that was odd to have a little 13-year-old girl kind of putting the bib around your neck and take. I'd take the X-rays. I know how to develop X-rays. I'd answer the phone and and fill out the insurance forms and things. So I,
1: was I it a way to be close to your father, oh, or definitely, was that? No, w-
2: definitely because you know, again, that that whole generation of men, you know, believed they are duty was earning the money and it was the wife's uh duty to raise the children and so it's not as if I never saw him but you know he he wasn't he didn't see himself as the active parent you know when I was growing up so that was the way and the occasional golf game so that's in here two <laughs> golf and tennis and and helping him uh take dental x-rays um and so the this first story the safe comes from that and some of the family stories this this passage I'm going to read is something that actually happened. And then the image of the safe, which um, my father's office was in what used to be an undertaker's building. Uh, It was a funeral home, which I thought was pretty spooky. And it looked spooky. And there were all these strange window seats and things uh, right out of arsenic and old lace. And my brother and sister (laughs) would tell me there were still bodies in there that hadn't been buried. (laughs) That's a great movie,
0: by the way. (laughs) (laughs) And
2: and then once when... um, I never went down in the basement in all the years my father had that building, but when he was selling the building and moving to Florida, he said that one of the things that was down there was this safe. And he said it was closed when he bought the building, and uh, then he was selling it with the safe still closed, and I said, Dan, weren't you even curious? What was in that? What's in their safe? It could be money. It could be. You don't know what's in there. He said, "Oh, well, who need? I don't need more tourists. I don't need more trouble." So well, you don't know it's trouble. Maybe it's money. He said, "No, I guarantee you, it's trouble." And so he inherited the safe and then sold the building with the safe still in it without ever opening it, which I could never imagine doing. And I thought, you know, that's such a wonderful image of. Um, you know that there may be some secrets you don't want to know and some things that aren't worth exploring and so here's the safe which is you know it's funny the the book the book is called in the mouth but the cover picture is a safe and, and yes, it's, it's part a of great it, cover great cover images yeah. and you know on the one hand it would have been a little too obvious to have it be called the In the Mouth and then a big mouth on the cover. So because (laughs) the first story is called The Safe, um, my wonderful publisher Martha Rhodes came up with and, and her designer Ryan Murphy came up with this image of The Safe which in a way is a mouth, you know, you think about opening it and seeing what's inside the way you look down a person's mouth and wonder what's inside that perth- person. And then that leads into this opening section of, uh, which is actually has the dentist looking in someone's mouth and trying to see right down into their very essence.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah. We won't say any more about that just yet, but, um, oh, so that's so interesting that actually like some of, how these stories came about where it really is this, there was a building that right. your father bought and had his dental office and there was the basement in the building with this safe. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I was wondering, well, maybe the safe is, you know, this symbol because although all throughout every story in mm-hmm. the collection, um, every one features the connections and relationships between family members and then people that who they have their eye on. Right. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. um, but, but there's also um, as strong as that's featured the isolation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is of the individual, and so then the safe, what's locked away, right? The um, secrets that th- everybody has. Th- and th- and, that and you do you live really? With.
2: And do you live with them? Do you really want to know other people's or not? And what do you gain by opening the s- safe and knowing the secret? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that. But you know.
1: Images. But this was a real safe, this which was a I love, like it actually existed. Well, uh, and your father did this. Like right. he, there was something about it, this that he wanted to keep. Right. His, well, what I always
2: tell my students is that symbols, if they're working, are there organically, naturally in your story or your poem or whatever before you understand why they're there. And they just come up in the first drift, either because they happen in real life. But, you know, a lot of things happen. Why would you choose that? Detailed to put in, and your job in succeeding drafts is to figure out why your subconscious dished up those images. And uh, you know, if you sat down and tried to s- think of a, a symbol for secrets or whatever in your story, you had to come up with something corny and too obvious. Um, your right. your unconscious is much more subtle than that, and so you look at what's already in your story and think. What can I do with that? How do I kind of figure out what um, power, what emotion attaches to that? I mean, that's the way it happens in real life. There are certain objects in your life that you come back to again and again because they have certain associations for you. And that's how imagery works. That's how symbols work in real life. And that's really kind of how they work in a story, especially a short story, you know, which is so much more kind of condensed than and dependent on those images.
1: Yes, yes. And in thinking about images, like even and the idea and the image behind the father, and and as you said, like this generation Mm -hmm. that was sort of taught also... Not to express maybe their emotions that cr- or communicate that much what their feelings right. were. So th- that being locked away from from the daughter or from the child mm. in some right. way. And I you know
2: and I focus on dentists so much partly because I know sort of the vocabulary the the smells the feels of of dentistry through my dad, but also because as I was growing up it was the one job I
1: never ever wanted to
2: have. That's what I was going to
1: ask. Why didn't you go in that route since you knew how to do the X rays, <laughs> put on the bibs, and because
2: <laughs> to me it was the least. Glamorous glamorous. thing in the world who wanted to spend their life standing there with their hands in somebody's mouth. I wanted, you know, fame. I wanted to be famous and happy. (laughs) And, um, and that generation, so many people was, you know, how can I earn a living and be my own boss? They came through the depression. They didn't have the money. They came through world war two and people were ordering them to do things they didn't want to do. And so, you know, I was all thinking about what can I do where I'll be happy and famous and, you know, it'll be very exciting, which is just what's the opposite of that, being a dentist. you know? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so Although that, you're uh, famous in your town. <laughs> <laughs> well, infamous a bit more. <laughs> and, well, oh, oh, the, oh, the dentist is famous. Oh, yeah, you know, my uh, it is funny because my father was famous not only for being the town dentist, But also, he was the the joke-telling dentist. He took the whole heritage from the Borscht Belt, which is stand-up comedy. And it's it's almost like a terrible cliché, but he... You know, he'd get you in the chair, (laughs) stuff gotten in your mouth, and depending on who you were, tell either a really dirty joke or a very clean one or whatever, you know. and um, He had a repertoire. He had an amazing (laughs) repertoire. Once in in Boca, there was supposed to be a stand-up comic or two, and the the guy was late, and for an hour, my father got his wish. He stood up, and he entertained for an hour with just the jokes in his head. Were you there for that? No, my mother, I mean, it was... it was just like the whole height of his life was yeah. that he got to do that. And she still, you know, r- talks about that as being, you know.
1: Oh, that's, that sounds amazing. Well, you know what? Um, I think what we're going to do is, Eileen, we'll just, uh, we're we're going to, well, let's read in in the next 15 minutes. Okay. So, um, because I've been just chatting your ear, <laughs> ear off here. But going back to the the image of the father that you're using throughout mm-hmm. this book. So this is what you're... It, which your subconscious is considering sort of, and that's why you're writing about it from wh- what right. you said. Um, so it's also not just this, this image of the father and the prime, but it's coming back to when the fathers are either fallen or when the child is reached as the adult and, has, mm-hmm. and sees that they're the, the secrets or things aren't what they thought or the, the father is like physically right. vulnerable.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I don't think that one's much of a mystery as my father was getting to be that age. Um, I couldn't imagine what I would do if he died. And I think in some ways this was a rehearsal. You you kind of try to figure out how you would stand it or what it would be like. And and so I wrote all these stories when he was still healthy, although the brist, I wrote as he was, you know, um, he had been diagnosed with cancer and he was really fading fast. So... It was it was hard to be writing them, and you know while he was still alive and healthy, and then as he was declining, and then I literally had to read one of those stories as I got on the plane to go see him, you know, in the last days. So it was um, it was clearly my way of of working through it all as it, before it happened, as it was happening, happening, and and just after it happened. Um, I can't say it helps that much. <laughs> you still have to face what you face. But, um, you know, I know, I know that's what I was doing. But that is, yeah. That sounds like the writer's way. Right. But I think I was also trying to say to him, uh, you're important enough that I want to understand you and write about you. And I think that made him very happy. So he
1: had, was he able to hear some of the stories? Oh, I
2: gave them all to him to read, which is really odd. But, um, and, and one of them, when he read Milton Moose, which is about a dentist's last day, he said, I was wrong to tell you not to be a writer, you know, and and I really was, he said, you got it all right, you know, thank you. So, you know, it made it all worthwhile.
1: Let's take a short break. We'll be right back with Eileen Pollack and her latest In the Mouth on Living Writers.
0: Such a delicate thing. Now it's such a fragile thing that we have. I should be suspended from class. I don't know my elbow from my eyes. I should be suspended.
1: Afternoon, You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today, Eileen Pollack joins us. And so that without further ado, let's get to uh, some of the story, the safe, Eileen, if you don't mind. The first story in the collection.
2: Right. And this is the very first uh, scene. My father was born not far from Blessington, but my mother didn't move there until after they were married. She was motherless and pregnant and so developed friendships with the other young women on her street. Unfortunately, these young women were even more superstitious and less informed about procreation than she was. When a friend named Sissy Flight suffered a miscarriage, Sissy blamed herself for indulging in the pleasure of gloating about her blessings—a comfortable, well-furnished house, a successful, devoted husband who couldn't keep his hands off her, and the baby growing inside her womb before the child was born. Later when she became pregnant a second time, Sissy told no one but my mother. And even then, she made my mother swear she wouldn't breathe a word to another soul. I'm not sure why my mother betrayed her best friend's confidence. She was perfectly capable of keeping a secret. She didn't enjoy poking fun. And yet, when my father came home from his dental office that night, she told him that Sissy was pregnant again. As it happened, Sissy had an appointment with my father two days later. He isn't given to playing jokes, but on this one occasion, he apparently couldn't resist. Why, Sissy, he exclaimed, peering down her throat, did you know you're expecting? Too shocked to say anything, Sissy opened wider. There's no doubt about it. You ought to call Saul and let him know the good news. But, Boris, she said, you don't mean to tell me you can see the baby that way <laughs> down my throat? Certainly I can. There's a membrane protecting the fetus, but in just the right light. He meant to end the joke there and wish Sissy all the best, but she begged him to look down her throat a second time and tell her if the child was healthy or not. Sissy's hunger to be reassured was so apparent on her face, my father said yes, she would have a healthy child. A boy, he suspected, although at that stage, the genitals were so tiny it was risky for him to guess. When both prophecies came true, Sissy called my father to thank him for sparing her those five dreadful months of anxiety, and he never did bring himself to confess the trick. And as my father would say, true story. <laughs> really? Actually, yeah, he did that um, to a patient. So that was one of the stories I grew up with. And I, I just always wanted to use it. So that was, that was a, the beginning of that story.
1: That's a good one. How did, how did you decide to choose this as the, the, the first, like the, the flag of the collection, how it's planted there yeah, at the you beginning? Know,
2: you know, it's funny how you have to arrange stories in a collection because um, in this one, there are the dentist stories. And then the non-dentist
1: stories. So we decided to intersperse them. And and when you say we, who, who do you mean with that? Is it Martha Rhodes? Yeah. A little shout-out to Martha again. Yeah, a <laughs> yeah, little shout-out to
2: Martha again. Um, I drove everybody crazy. I just kept um, shuffling them around and saying, this way, no, this way, no, this way. Um, you want to have uh, variety in length and in tone. So you don't want to have three stories that are downers in a row. Um Yeah, so there are are just sort of themes, characters. And I wanted to introduce Milt, who's um, one of the dentists early in the collection, because then there's the long novella that I knew would be the anchor at the end of the collection with him again. And so I wanted it to be like, okay, here's this guy... You know a little bit about him. You don't expect you're going to see him again. A couple more stories go by. And then there's Milt again, but he's in Florida now. And so you feel like you've run into an old friend somewhere new, that fun feeling when you're like, you're Milt Rothstein. I know you, but you, you're you in Florida. Why aren't you? Oh, and then he says, well, I've retired. And, oh, and my wife is dead now. And, you know, and so here's here's my story from here. So you're trying to get effects like that.
1: And, and, and you know, and actually... With that setting, you actually from the first story, Milton Moose, you you do know that Greta um, is sick. Is sick, yeah,
2: yeah. And I didn't want it to be about her actually dying, so it's it's like you know it, and then by the end of the book, she's gone, and you can fill in the blanks. I mean, I don't think, and there's some references to it, sort of looking back.
1: Do you ever find um, these characters th- from this collection are coming back to you so that they're things that you will you are going to write about again <laughs> it's
2: so it was so much fun the um The novel I was referring to that uh takes it's a Catskill's novel that ends up in las vegas and it's sort of about organized crime my family's connection to murder incorporated um and and so there are these dead bodies. Everyone's just said. perking up right now. <laughs> <laughs> so the rat pack makes an, exper- uh, uh, an appearance, but um, there is a dead body. And at the very end, you know, how do you identify bodies that have been out in the desert for a long time and are skeletal DT? <laughs> and so there's a point in, where they have to send back to the Catskills for dental records and I thought I know who has those dental records <laughs> old Milt Rothstein but he retired to Florida so they're going to be really hard to get and and so there's just this one walk-on role at the end of the novel for, for Milt
1: <laughs> oh that's great it was a lot of fun so there are um So, which is interesting because when I was um, reading through a lot of Charles Baxter's uh, stuff Mm -hmm. uh, before speaking with him, um, like I thought that must be how the Sol and Patsy, you know, like they just kept those stories because they're sort of throughout different collections uh, for the beginning. That's how they came up. Mm -hmm. So so things do sort of just... um, Come, right. come back to you. So you, more, there's more to the story to tell. So it's right. good to know that Milt will be coming back um, in a novel. He's, you know, he's gone from short story to novella, and novel. now he's got the novel. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he's got the whole. It's like he's got everything on his. I don't know, like a heavyweight wrestler with a belt or something. <laughs> right. So, so, um, so let's talk about your story because you've been on Living Writers with one of my predecessors, <laughs> Ashley, right. and um, and and you read from the the Briss, which is another story that's featured in the collection. It's the second story. Right. Yes. And um, and Stephen King chose it for the Best American Short Stories of 2007. He did, and for uh, which I will always be grateful.
2: <laughs> well, it was a, it was it was a wonderful honor. It's always it's always great to be well as if it happens to me all the time. It uh, was great to be chosen for Best American Short Stories, but because Stephen King was the editor that year, I think it got a lot more buzz than it might have otherwise and he's just been a prince about it he's been going around the country trying to drum up support for short stories and especially for literary short stories um i got to meet him which was a real thrill he's a lovely human being um he's not scary at all (laughs) what's scary is how nice he is um and i got to i got to say my one little joke to him, um, the story the bris is about a grown man who needs to be circumcised. So I said, oh, well, you know, Stephen, (laughs) the joke I'm telling everybody is that you chose the bris because it struck you, you know, the whole idea of a grown man being circumcised struck you as a horror story. (laughs) And he laughed a little bit politely and then said, no, I chose it because it reminded me of one of my favorite novels. The Assistant by Bernard Malamud, and I just was floored because, you know, that was the literary echo in my mind, but you don't, I mean, stereotyping the poor man, you don't expect Stephen King to be saying, oh yeah, Bernard Malamud's The Assistant is one of my favorite books. Um, So I just kind of hung my head for having not given him credit (laughs) but now he's getting it now like now he's he's uh, he's one of the best read guys you can imagine I mean I suppose he has more time to read than some of the rest of us but um, you know yeah he's just about the most widely read person I've ever
1: met it is so interesting that you say because he was the the, um, the editor, uh, the guest editor for right. for that the 2007 series. It would, I, I'd say, a, a new readership for the series would right. be automatically give it a chance. Right, know, and, if,
2: and he was he was amazing. First of all, he read far far more stories than they expected him to read. Usually, what happens is the assistant, I mean, the editor of the series, Heidi, Heidi Pidler. Reads all these magazines and stories and calls, say, a hundred and gives them to the person. And he went out and just found hundreds and hundreds more um, from unlikely sources. So he was looking in science fiction magazines and places that uh, Best American doesn't usually like, uh, doesn't usually look. Good writing is everywhere. That's what he said, and um, I really admired him for that. And he took the job very seriously,
1: and um, it was it was just a pleasure. And in his introduction essay, I saw that he pulls like he doesn't mention he's not able to mention everyone, but he does mention your story. Right,
2: and I was so flattered and honored, and it was it was wonderful. So,
1: it's uh, great. I'm glad you got to tell him your joke too. Well, it's
2: also we gave um, there were a couple of events for the book, and uh, one of them was a panel discussion with. Uh, Stephen King and some of the other writers in the collection. And I was there, but I wasn't on the panel. Where was the panel? It was in uh, Boston and Cambridge, Massachusetts. And afterward, there was a signing. Um, And uh, the publisher wanted all of us who had had stories in the collection to sit there and sign our story. So Stephen King was at the head of the table and then the rest of us. And, you know, I've signed books before, but... There were a thousand people in the audience who had showed up for this reading, this panel discussion on the literary short story, and they were for all, a
1: panel. Even. I know,
2: and they were all <laughs> Stephen King fans, and I, and they all, you got a free copy of the book with your fifteen dollar ticket, um, and every single one of them signed, got in line for King to sign his or her book. And so the rest of us all signed, too. So I said, it it really was for once in my... I mean, everybody should have the chance once in their life to sign their name a thousand times. It was just a trip. It was really, really amazing. And each person, you'd hear conversations, and people would be holding their copy of the book waiting for the signatures and say, Oh, I can't wait to read all these stories, and if I like one of these, I'm going to go out and buy a collection by that person and you know the writers we were all sitting there going yay, yay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> hallelujah hallelujah
2: <laughs> so yeah I'm a huge Stephen King
0: fan <laughs>
1: uh, well I know his essay I mean students like here like on impact is one that like a lot of students mm-hmm. I- meet in there <laughs> yes <laughs>
2: <laughs> when they take college he writing has a, he here. has a book on uh, on writing that's actually quite a good yes
1: book. yeah I've read that too mm-hmm. yeah it's a very I've heard students really can connect to that yeah. as well I read it a long a while ago, mm-hmm. so it is. It's a good. Well, now we've we've given the kudos to Stephen King like he needs anymore, <laughs> right? Well, <laughs> I, th- I think I think he needs
2: them for something he doesn't usually get them for. So that's
1: that's true, yeah. And keeping the faith with writers yeah. and and making sure that you're it's because so 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 often it seems that writers will sort of they want things to become, which is crazy to me. Like they want to be categorized, or they're 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 fine with. Um, I mean, feeling that, that there's genre fiction and fine with looking right. down on it instead of, you know, whether it's mysteries or science right. fiction. And I just think that is crazy. I mean, yeah. there is good writing everywhere. And he's
2: one of the people who's helping to break down a lot of those barriers, you know, Michael Chabon and and uh, people like that. I think, I think it's all, all to the good.
1: Yes, can't. Yes, we need more <laughs> more ambassadors like that. Um, well, let's take a short break, and we'll be right back. Uh, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T Hetzel, and today Eileen Pollock on WCBN FM, Ann Arbor.
3: You shook me, you shook me all night long. Couldn't loose. Whoa, you shook me, pretty mama. You shook me all night long. Couldn't rest a bit. Kept on shaking me, baby. Oh, you done messed up my happy home. You know your movement, baby. Just like a hurricane. Oh, and that's a strong man. Oh, you move me, pretty mama You know you move me Just like a hurricane Didn't have a chance Oh, you move me, pretty mama Just like a earthquake You move the land Oh, she took me all over
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. uh, And Eileen Pollack joins me today in the studio and also uh, joins uh, intrepid engineer Jesse Johnston. Thanks, Jesse, as always, for engineering so brilliantly. Um, All right, well, we're back here, back in the saddle, uh, winding down. Um, Remember, tonight, if you're listening here in Ann Arbor, you have a chance to catch Eileen Pollack, read live, and you'll also be signing copies of In the Mouth. Okay, so you'll be there. Okay, I'll be. <laughs> <laughs> and that'll be Michigan League, seven p.m. in the Hussy Room, right? Which is always a funny room to say. <laughs> good sound quality there. Um, <laughs> well, one of Eileen's other hats we should perhaps at least touch on is that you are at the helm of the creative writing program here. I mentioned it in the, the introduction. Right. Um So. Yeah, you've and you've had so many um, exciting jobs because you've also been a reporter. You've written creative nonfiction, really? um, and so I don't know. But it, what, how does this job rate with all these other jobs that you've had, Eileen? <laughs> Tell it to us straight. Well, it's a lot better than waitressing or not
2: <laughs> At least for okay. the feet. <laughs> for, for the feet, for the back, for the bank account, for the self-esteem. Um, not particularly for the writing time. but well, um, It keep, keeps you busy being at the helm. keeps you That's busy. Um, I like to say that my books are, and stories and poems are being written by... Forty-eight other hands, um, other pairs of hands. <laughs> so it's it sort of you become Santa instead of one of the elves,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: right here, <on> living writers. <laughs>
2: but um, but you know, it's a it's it's. I only have two more years of it after this. Not that I'm crossing the.
1: It's not on days your calendar, of it, right? right? Yeah.
2: But um, it's it's completely different. I mean, it's funny how in mo- in a lot of professions. Uh, people trained to be anything but an administrator. So I know, you know, there are scientists who only want to do, you know, lab work and, you know, get their hands dirty and mix things in beakers, and then they end up running in their lab and have, you know, a million dollar budget to run and. Uh, people to manage, and those are not their skills, but that's what they end up doing. And writers, you know, you become a writer because you want to sit by yourself in a little room with no no other people. Your and,
1: imagination,
2: right, right? Just and and not have to deal with spreadsheets or tell people what to do or attend meetings or take the responsibility for anything. And then you find that that's what you're doing. So, um, it but is you're kind also of an irony. very
1: good at it, though. You do have like these these skills. Well, Which, I I hope so, <laughs> but
2: they're not the ones that come naturally. And it's funny because my sister and I are getting closer and closer, and one reason is um, she's an MBA. Uh, she's one of the first women who graduated from Wharton. And I call her up and say, I have a management question. <laughs> and she says, see, see, what I do is worth, you know, and I, I she's actually been really helpful. These very basic sort of um, how you... How you run a meeting, sort of things. That she's been oh, helping me with. How you make decisions. How you.
1: She keeps teaching me how to read
2: spreadsheets over and over. <laughs> so.
1: uh, well, that's good. That's and, so, and you went to you studied science in Yale, yeah. Didn't so, you and you were one of like the the trailblazers there as well, right? Well, because you mentioned Wharton with your yeah, sister. I'm I'm not sure how much of a
2: blaze i made but but Ah,
1: i was the first
2: on the trail um (laughs) there weren't uh i was the first woman to major in physics there although somebody who was a year ahead switched her major at the last minute and got the first physics degree um but you know in in most of our classes um there was you know i was the only woman or uh maybe there's one other woman and and so yeah it was it was kind of uh a trailblazing experience. <laughs> and I like to say I'm I'm good with numbers until you put dollar signs in front of them. You know, I mean I, I took many, many math courses, but A, that was a long time ago and B it was all abstractions and and I wasn't always terrified that I'd say I had money for something and then find out I did the program didn't and I'd have to make it up out of my own pocket or I <laughs> you know figure figure that I hadn't you know, filled out the right forms and I was going to be accused of embezzling something or
1: whatever. <laughs> oh no. no okay. No. Now let's get back to more pleasant topics. Like, like this idea Quick. of happiness, right? Oh, that yeah, you mentioned earlier <laughs> with, um, so, and so you became at some point after this, you, you were like, you didn't go into physics necessarily. You went right. in, you were a reporter for a while. Right. And so that would, oh, I was a lot of things.
2: I, um, Actually, I had taken a, a a nonfiction course my last year at Yale. I, I got to study with John Hersey, who really was one of my idols and sort of circuit fathers. Um, and uh, I was and then I was kind of lost. I had worked so hard for so long on this physics degree and then did nothing with it and didn't know what else I was going to do. And I was really kind of at... I was washing pots and pans in a deli in a suburb of Chicago that, and to call it a deli is to glorify it, to call it a suburb was to glorify it. I was living under, in an apartment under a railroad track. It was, it was really miserable. Um, And a dear friend of mine who wanted only to be a reporter had gotten a job for a really wonderful small newspaper up in New Hampshire. And she was covering the 1980 uh, primary where Reagan ended up pulling ahead of the pack, and they needed, everybody was so busy on the primary, they needed a features writer to cover everything else, all the sort of soft stuff. Which is the perfect, was perfect. perfect gig, so isn't she, it? I don't, I'm not quite sure how she did it, but she convinced the editor to hire me, even though I'd never written for, even for the school newspaper, and uh, didn't have a journalism degree. He hired me without even having met me, and I got in a car and drove from Chicago to um, Concord, New Hampshire, in the middle of dead of winter 1980 and the next day i was covering the primary
1: wow (laughs) wow well you had some good karma coming from you after living under you know the you know the The railroad railroad tracks and the (laughs) the deli dishes i'm like having flashbacks of my own now so i'm sure this was coming to you (laughs) eileen
2: no i I was very lucky and it was very exciting and um nerve-wracking but yeah and then i um decided I wanted to write fiction. So I'd quit the newspaper every so often and try to make it as either a fiction writer or a freelancer and run out of money and beg them to take me back. And then I finally got into Iowa and I um, I moved to Iowa City and switched to fiction, although I kind of go back and forth to nonfiction.
1: Yeah, you have a talent for essays. and yeah. and, and, and in fact, you've sort of been, is it fair to say, honing it here at the university with teaching the creative nonfiction course. Yeah, it's
2: really been a lot of fun. Um, what I did was take Hersey's course. Uh, he really had an innovative way of teaching nonfiction um, based not on the subject. A lot of people divide their books up according to, you know, science writing or political writing of a that doesn't really help you figure out how to write it yourself. If I just told you write a nature essay, write something about nature, it doesn't help you figure out where do I start and where do <laughs> go I go from the there. Go into the woods.
1: Right. <laughs> Find so, yourself a pond.
2: <laughs> so Hersey w- had broken um, sort of the genre down by form, by its structure. And really it was, it's it's not a how-to, but, it, it, but it's much more useful for figuring out how you actually write an essay. And um, I took what he had and... You know, use that as the basis of my own course and over the years sort of fine-tuned it and um, put together a course pack. um, And he's no longer with us, um, but I give him all the credit for, for what I've come up with, which is just building on what he had started with. Um, and so this is going to end up being a textbook in the anthology that's going to be out in January.
1: I'm very excited about it. In in January 2009. Yes. And in, um, in what what uh, what's the title of it, Eileen? Is huh. that settled yet, or what? Yeah, what, yeah. The
2: title's funny because uh, my working title was just creative nonfiction, and then I thought, well, surely someone has taken that title, but nobody had because for so many years. Not even Lee Gutkind, The Godfather. No, The Godfather <laughs> didn't because the. Um, there was a certain aura of, you know, unacceptability about calling it creative nonfiction. Nobody knew what to call the genre. It started as the new journalism or literary nonfiction. People thought those were kind of, well, isn't, what, what is what there? Literary nonfiction and non-literary nonfiction. I mean, people didn't know what to do with it, but the term creative nonfiction was problematic because it sounded like you were making up something. So, oh, so you're being creative with the truth. Isn't that just a lie? Um uh, that's
1: memoir No, I'm that's just getting <laughs> right
2: <laughs> so um I actually st- just it's one of those cases where you take the pejorative term and make it you say you're proud of it and so I'm proud I'm embracing I mean because the fact is everybody calls it creative nonfiction anyway um, and so nobody actually calls it the fourth genre or or any of those other terms so I'm just calling it creative nonfiction and and explaining what the term means that the creative is not an adjective for the nonfiction that you're telling the truth and I'm really very stringent about not making things up right uh, my, oh my, yeah. my classes have always gotten these lectures about about don't end don't end up on Oprah admitting that you made it all up. <laughs> that you really grew up in a suburban household and you're no you didn't grow up, you know. As a gang as a member. Gang member. Yeah. Yeah. Um and so it, it's not that you're being creative by making things up. You're you're being creative in how you present the truth in terms of your language, your the form you present it in, your your own observations, your take on things, but not
1: making things up. It, it seems exciting that you had a chance, because I'm picturing the book, although I haven't seen it, to, at the beginning, so as you said, to define creative nonfiction, because right. you're like, to, to take the pride in right. it, I guess, right. and, um, and sort of a manifesto of sorts, where you sort of just lay out what you believe about right. it. Is that the case, Eileen? Is well, that
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of um, didn't see it that way to begin with but that's what happened when you sit down and you're writing these I I just took my course and which had always been or passed down in the The oral oral tradition (laughs) it's like when they finally wrote down the Torah no I I hardly mean that but (laughs) oh I'm very modest I just wrote the Torah (laughs) (laughs) January 2009 (laughs) you heard it here um but yeah you know you find out well I can't just assume people know what this term means so I'll define it and then that definition because it's in a book starts to take on oh no people are going to disagree so I'll have to reference this or that and and if you're in the university of course things become you know more programmatic and so yeah I'm 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 kind of Putting myself out there. Here's creative nonfiction. <laughs> you and it, know, it makes
1: complete sense because you 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 told us about driving up to Concord and like so those you sort of those formative moments for you. Uh, you know, kind of cutting your chops with features. Right. You know, so it seems it all seems when you start looking at it, it's like well, yeah, it's it funny. It does come to this. Oh,
2: your life can seem completely a mess when you're living it, and then you look back and somehow impose order on it and say yes, it all. It all made sense. <laughs> <laughs> There's got
1: to be like a Frank Sinatra song right, like, or a Rat Pack song, right? <laughs> if only we could go on on that. Well, Eileen, thank you so much for being on the program today. Thanks and for having and, me, T. I really
2: enjoyed it. Well,
1: well, um, well, everyone, if you're in Ann Arbor, you have a chance to hear Eileen Pollack reading from her stories and novellas, in the Mouth tonight at the Michigan League uh, at 7 p.m. in the Hussy Room. And if not, you can, you know, you can definitely swing by Shaman Drum, pick up In the Mouth. Or if you're streaming, uh, yeah, check out the book and read some of the stories uh, beached in Boca that we never l- let you quite hear a snippet of yet. Yeah. Thanks to those who are listening to Ann Arbor, those streaming. Thanks again to Eileen Pollack and engineer Jesse Johnston. Uh, you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
2: Report.
0: Tamley now a chance in front of shot and score as Caloric will get it on the doorstep off you the stick of Nystrom. And the Wolverines take a one-nothing lead off the goal by Chad taloric That may be the goal the Wolverines needed to get things jump-started here. He he now it's Tambellini makes a
3: move, a shot, and scores. Jeff Tambellini with the goal as he came streaking in, and the Wolverines now lead two-nothing. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Daily Sports Report here on this is Wednesday, March the 19th. Rushi Vias here in the studio with Mike Tobin and Sheila Daniels. And Sheila is going to start us off with some Michigan news. First of all, welcome back, Sheila.
0: Rushi, I took a little leave of absence, but I ran here, so that's why I work at the sports department because I can run fast. Um, let's talk about a couple things besides, you know, Terrell Pryor, he who must not be named. Um, let's start it's with
3: Facebook. It's fine. Just, just say it. All right. Terrell it's Pryor. i not happy I'm
0: not happy with this. I-